Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to talk about some of the early history of Jackson, Michigan. So come along and join me. Now, Jackson, Michigan is the county seat of Jackson County. And the first settlers arrived in the area in 1829. And it's more in south-central Michigan. And it lies along the Grand River, about 70 miles west of Detroit, and about the same distance from Kalamazoo. It was settled in 1829 at the meeting point of several Indian trails. And it was named after U.S. President Andrew Jackson. And the town has been known successively as Jacksonburg, Jacksonopolis, and finally it became Jackson in 1833. In 1839, Michigan's first state prison was built in Jackson, and it has continued to be a major employer in the city. And at one point, the town became the eastern terminus of the Michigan Central Railroad in 1841, and five other railroads soon passed through Jackson, making it an important regional rail center. And there's some other stories that I'm going to tell you about Jackson here in this episode, but let's take a look at how this city came into existence in the very earliest time. Now, as the history of any village in the West, as it was known back then, and tracing the development of a town... At one time, the area we know as Jackson today was strictly wilderness. And it's kind of hard to imagine that the farthest west anyone had ventured and settled was Ann Arbor back at that time period. And Jackson was way out in the middle of the wilderness. And it was the haunts of wild beasts and untamed and savage wilderness that was between what is present-day Jackson and Ann Arbor. There was a lot of forest land between the two. And previous to the year 1829, there was not a vestige of civilization a dozen miles west of the little hamlet at that time known as Ann Arbor. And there really was nothing in the area of central or western Michigan. Despite all the magnificent resources that would soon to be discovered, it was essentially a wilderness filled with Indian trails and a few outposts for traders and a few early settlers. Typically, some of them were surveyors or just some adventurous Frenchmen and early pioneers that had been out west of that location. So despite the Indian traders, there really wasn't a lot of traffic and Contact with the Native Americans was done by just those people that ventured into the forest and the wilderness. Occasionally, the governor, with his aides and a few troops, would penetrate deep into the recesses of the territory to make treaties with the Indians, but the people that were to populate that region were few and far between during that time period. So when you left Ann Arbor, you were leaving the last boundaries of civilized life at the little hamlet, and you were essentially an adventurous explorer taking off into the wilderness. And your only guide was an Indian Trail footpath that led through the forest land and prairies that were between. 
Now, most of this information that I'm reading to you comes from a reference called The History of Jackson, Michigan, that was published in a Jackson City Directory and Business Advisor in 1867 and in 1868. And like any new settlement that formed in the West Territory. The rivers and streams had a great deal to do with it because it allowed for the construction of mills to power the machinery over the waters. And these mills that were constructed typically early on were lumber mills and grain mills. Lumber mills, of course, providing a resource to cut the timber into useful board planks that could build structures as well as logs and joists for homes and roof shingles and that and everything that goes into construction of a wooden building during that era. Additionally, the grain mills provided a resource to grind wheat into flour, which you could use to make bread and all sorts of other baked goods as a staple of the diet, as well as corn and other types of grain that were grown in later years. There were other types of mills that would be established as well, including cider mills and garment mills where they spun the uh, wheel in the river to create power in which to create fabric, usually with wool, so that they could spin the wool into cloth. And uh, But those came later. The ones that were primarily established early on were your lumber mills and grain mills. But by 1841... Jackson, as I mentioned before, had become the eastern terminus of the Michigan Central Railroad. They had brought the railroad out from Ann Arbor and Detroit all the way out to Jackson at that point, which if you were headed west by rail, you went as far as Jackson and then you got onto a stagecoach or a wagon and headed west through the wilderness on the Indian trails and the That was the end of the railroad at that point. And so if you were delivering mail, that was where you went. And then you loaded up your mail bags into the wagons and you headed out along the Indian trails as well as the territorial roads to go do your deliveries. The first three individuals to arrive in the area that we know as Jackson today came in 1829 And those three individuals was Horace Blackman from Tioga County, New York, Captain Alexander Laverty, who had been engaged by Mr. Blackman at Ann Arbor, and another man, Petwee Toon, a Potawatomi Indian who served as a guide. And those three together ventured out down the Indian Trail in search of a place to settle when Blackman found the location, or they arrived at the location, after leaving the settlement at Ann Arbor, which at that time, Ann Arbor was a village of about 400 to 500 people, which is kind of hard to imagine, but it was that small at the time. And they set out from Ann Arbor on the second day of July, 1829, following the Indian Trail, and they were assured by the Potawatomi that the region of the Grand River, where Jackson was eventually settled, would be a beautiful and fertile country to set up a village. So in their adventure to that location, they crossed marshes and forded creeks and rivers, and sometimes they had to wade through swamps and then walk through long stretches of oak openings or waving grass on the prairies. And it took them only two days to get there and arrive at the location that would become the future settlement of Jackson. 
So when they arrived on July 3rd, the next morning on July 4th, they had a celebration dinner and after setting up camp. And they had uh, set up along the river. And this Indian trail that they followed would eventually be expanded into what was commonly referred to as the Territorial Road. And quite often the road itself followed the same path as the Indian Trail. Other times it didn't, but essentially it headed in the same direction towards Chicago. So they only stayed briefly in the area and they built a log cabin and then they returned to New York with the intention of returning the following spring with their family and a colony of settlers. And of course, when they returned, they filed the claim for the land after locating where they wanted to uh, purchase the land at. And during the winter of 1829 to 1830, the Legislative Council in Detroit passed an act setting off a new tier of counties that essentially followed the trails heading west of Washtenaw County. And those included Jackson County, Calhoun County, Kalamazoo County, and St. Joseph County. And they would contain 27 townships, giving an area of about 720 square miles. And eventually, a lot of the other lower counties were also declared and organized, including Hillsdale, Branch, Berrien County, and so forth. In that same session, they authorized the establishment of the Territorial Road running through the same tier of counties, which opened up a route for immigrants to travel westward. And it also ran a parallel route to the military route, which would become known as the Chicago Road, leading from Detroit to the fort on the Chicago River. And the Chicago Road was a little bit more south, and it kind of went through the lower part of Hillsdale County, across Branch, and then through St. Joseph, and so forth. And the year 1830 was an eventful year of the formation of the colony that would become Jackson. In the early spring, a settlement began with the arrival of a large company from Ann Arbor, setting up land claims in the same area. Some of those early pioneer settlers was Isaiah Bennett, William Thompson, Benjamin Packard, and E.W. Morgan, and Chauncey Lewis, who immediately located to the area and claimed land. The west side of the river was generally chosen for locations to set up cabins, and they adjoined the Blackman Purchase. And eventually a village was platted and established in this area from a lot of the early claims that were formed at that time. When Blackman returned, he brought along with him a blacksmith as well as some millers and a lot of uh, hands to help build cabins and mills and mercantile stores. And after the village was platted, a lot of the lots inside the village itself were offered to prospective merchants and sold at reasonable rates. And some of the men that came to establish early shops and stores were names like Stratton, Gillette, Case, Wickham, Caniff, Mills, Prusia, and many others that became the core of the village proprietors of the emerging village in the wilderness. And early on, the two Indian tribes that were in the area were the Ottawas and the Potawatomis, and they existed alongside the early pioneer settlers. And then in 1840, the government, ironically, from a push by Andrew Jackson, 
had the Native Americans removed to the west side of the Mississippi. And a lot of that forced migration has been referred to as the Trail of Tears. And there's a lot of history with that that was a pretty dark history, forcing people out of their homelands that they'd known all their lives and essentially having them leave everything behind and a lot of the injustices that happened along the way, including stealing their property and their horses. And it was just a very traumatic time. To their credit, many of the Potawatomi managed to escape the Trail of Tears and returned home and established themselves in southwest Michigan. Uh, a notable group of them established themselves just west of Athens in the Fulton in Athens area of Calhoun County. And there were a few other uh, spotty settlements that did the same in other counties, but the primary one was the, uh, the group that established the Pine Creek Reservation in southern Calhoun County, which still exists today and uh, is a thriving community. Horace Blackman was eventually appointed as the new justice in the territory of Jackson and that newly formed county as the township was organized between 1830 and 1831. And Blackman had come with his whole family, and there were a lot of a lot of individual settlers that made their mark on the territory at that time, forming the residents of the city. So that chronicles just a little bit of the early growth and establishment and settlement of Jackson, Michigan. I can put some of the links to the reference on the history of Jackson that I found on the University of Michigan's website. There's also a lot of other points of history that Jackson is noted for. Not only did it exist as the eastern terminus of the Michigan Central Railroad for a number of years before the railroad was continued westward, it also, as I mentioned earlier, became the establishment location for the state prison. Um, In 1854, it held the first convention of the newly formed Republican Party which was a merger of the abolitionist and free soil parties and the remains of the Whig Party, as the Whig Party was essentially beginning to unravel and fall apart, and the other growing party in the United States was the Democrat Party, and that had been driven by Andrew Jackson. They came on opposite sides on the issue of slavery. The abolitionists were very much against slavery, And the Whigs were, for the most part, a majority of their members were opposed to slavery. There were a few members that didn't want to interfere with the issue. But for the most part, they were opposed to slavery. And it wasn't until Henry Clay started really moving forward with a lot of the demands and and as part of the Missouri Compromise and a lot of other bills that were passed that kind of saw the collapse of the Whig Party around that time in 1854. And the Free Soil Party had been in existence, which was prominently driven by the Abolitionist Party. And Aristus Hussey, for example, from Battle Creek, was a station master on the Underground Railroad, and he was elected to the state legislature under the Free Soil Party. And he was one of only about three, I think, that were ever elected into the Michigan State Legislature under that party. But the Republican Party held its first convention and became organized on July 6, 1854 in Jackson, Michigan, in a famous meeting that has become known as Under the Oaks. 
and I believe there's still a historic landmark to that over in Jackson. In 1928, the Jackson Community College was established, and also the Michigan Space and Science Center in the city is housed in a geodesic dome, and the Cascades, which is an illuminated man-made waterfall that was built in 1932, are part of the Sparks Foundation County Park in Jackson, which is kind of a nice prominent landmark. There's also today the Ellis Sharp Museum, which includes a former working farm as well as exhibits on some of the pioneer and agricultural history of southern Michigan. And uh, Jackson was the boyhood home of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, The village was officially chartered in 1843, and the city became an officially chartered city in 1857. The population of Jackson as of the 2000 census was 36,316 people, and it has an area of 158,000 square miles. So it's come a long way since Horace Blackman, accompanied by Alexander Laverty, who was essentially a land surveyor, and their... Native American guide, and they forded the Grand River and made their camp, which eventually would become the village of Jackson, Michigan. So it's come quite a ways from that period of time. And the legislature established the first state prison, as I mentioned before, in 1838. And it was a temporary wooden prison that was enclosed by a fence of tamarack poles And it was built on about 60 acres that was donated for the purpose. And it was inside the city limits of Jackson. Then in 1839, the first 35 prisoners were received. And a permanent prison was built three years later. Uh, Beginning in the 1850s, Warden H.F. Hatch placed more emphasis on the education and rehabilitation of prisoners. And by 1882, Michigan's first state prison had developed the largest walled prison in the world. So that's just a little history of the Michigan State Prison that is in Jackson. Jackson also was the home for a corset company, and they manufactured corsets that went around the world. Some of the corset companies that existed in that community between the 1860s to the 1920s were the Borti Corset Company and the Jackson Corset Company and the Coronet Corset Manufacturing Company, which was a woman-owned company established in 1880. So there's some more interesting history. The other industry that has had a prominent role in the city of Jackson are a lot of the automotive industry. There was a Michigan Automotive Compressor Company, and there's been a few other manufacturing companies related to the automotive industry that have been established in the Jackson area that's added a lot to the economy over the years. So Jackson is a very fascinating community and has a lot of amazing culture and history behind it. I've had a guest on that's been on several times from the Michigan Military Heritage Museum, which is located in Jackson. And we've covered some Jackson history in some of his interviews. And um, I hope to have some more guests on in the future from other Jackson Historical Societies to go in more detail about the city of Jackson and its early pioneer years as a village. But that's going to conclude today's episode with a quick tour of some of the early history of Jackson, Michigan. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, you might consider subscribing to the channel, which you can do if you're a Spotify listener. And it's only a dollar per month, and I include a few additional bonus episodes on there. And I will be adding more bonus content as the summer goes on. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <laughs>